You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, it is hump day, and it is time for another podcast. Now, today, we... It's not really... A hunter profile podcast it's not really a strictly a gear podcast and what happens when i have a gear podcast and a hunter profile podcast and we kind of mash it all around and talk about everything uh, i call that a bs session and uh today i have a bs session with a guy who i've known for uh, quite a few years now uh he is a class act. He is a great representative of the hunting industry, the hunting community as a whole, and just an overall great person. And uh, his name is Craig Intervold, and you're going to be able to hear his story here shortly. Uh, it's one of those podcasts that I just forget that I am actually recording a podcast and having a conversation with a fellow hunter. So um, I know you guys are going to enjoy this one. Uh, but before we get into the podcast today, um, if you guys haven't heard yet of the National Deer Alliance, it is basically a gathering of, I'll just go to the website right now and, and read what they're united in our mission. It's a portion of it. And you guys can go check out the National Deer Alliance at nationaldeeralliance.com right and uh, it's free to join and basically what it is is and I'll, I'll just read the mission here the mission of the national deer alliance is to serve as the guardian of wild deer conservation and our heritage formally incorporated in may 2015 the national deer alliance is driven to assemble and unite a diverse group of stakeholders that includes hunters, managers, and industry to help create positive outcomes for deer and deer hunting. Now, 
you're going to go you're going to go to this website national deer alliance i need you to join the national deer alliance it's free little button you can click and um wednesday at noon from my understanding they are launching their brand new website should be pretty cool had a um a short conversation with mark Kenyon today of wired to hunt and uh the CEO of the National Deer Alliance. So um, they're going to be doing some really cool, really interesting things. And it's one of those things where you need to be involved, right? The time, I mean, if I told you, hey, I'm going to take away your guns, people throw a shit fit, right? But there's people out there who are trying to take away your right to hunt. So we need to unite and we need to make our voices heard for our heritage for our rights so the more people we get the the bigger and louder our voice is so uh and national deer alliance is trying to do that so uh go check out the national deer alliance and make sure you join it's free you can get some updates of some pretty cool things that are going on and uh yeah so now let's get into this week's podcast with craig intervold all right. On the phone with me now is Craig Intervold. How you doing today, Craig? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good, good. Now, I met you several years ago, and uh, you were the guy who actually introduced me to the technology of Ozonics. And uh, that's uh, that's it's crazy because now it's one of those things that I actually don't go in the tree stand without. So... I, I guess I should be thanking you for a little of my deer hunting success over the years. Yeah, thanks. It was one of those things. It was kind of hard to kind of hard to push the technology on people because it just kind of like it, it surpassed what people would typically believe in and accustomed to it. But boy, I tell you what, once it hit and people started tipping deer over with it, it just really took off. It's been a great product, and and like yourself, I'm still as giddy about it today as I was back when I first found it. That's right. So before we get started into, you know, get into the meat and potatoes of this, this is kind of a, uh, a hunter profile podcast mixed with, um, a gear podcast. So I'm, I'm just going to call it a BS session with you today, sure. but, um, why don't you tell everybody where you're from, where you live and, uh, what you do for a living? Well, Dan, I've, I've kind of been. I've been a Minnesota resident for most of my life. I just migrated over to North Dakota here a little over a year ago. And uh, so I'm 54 years old and I'm going to be 55 here in a few weeks. And and so I've been, in, again, in western Minnesota, down Fargo, North Dakota. And I got a, um, got a lake cabin in central Minnesota. I spent a lot of time up there. And and so I've just kind of been around and, and uh, you know, been in the industry itself, uh, the hunting industry, for almost 30 years through my previous employer shields and i retired in january this year i worked 29 years for them and found the opportunity to walk away uh, after a long career great career and uh so i'm just just kind of leading the retired life now so i'm actually enjoying it so my question is my uh my father-in-law is retired and he fishes almost every day now that he's retired are you doing a lot of fishing or what does your retirement look like so far well, as of right now, I've got uh, you know got a couple projects doing going on at the lake, and and uh, so all the things that have built up for the last five or so years, I'm trying to get them all done. And I might be juggling three or four projects at one time. So 
yes, I've done some fishing. Uh, you know, I've done some stuff up on the Whitetail Woods up there. I joined an organization locally called Outdoor Adventure Foundation, which is a group that, that basically takes uh, terminally ill kids and sick kids on hunting and fishing trips. Oh, nice. And I joined, joined that group at the end of last year, so I'm looking forward to spending some time out in the field with some of these kids that, that in a lot of sense, don't have a lot to look forward to, but we want to do everything we can to make them enjoy and, uh, you know, look forward to the next day. And um, so I kind of got involved with that group, and so I'm looking forward to doing more of that. So where do you do a majority of your hunting, in Minnesota, or do you do some in North Dakota as well? I do I, I do mainly birds in North Dakota. I'm a pheasant hunter also. I just have, I've loved to hunt pheasants through the years. And and so I do some hunting uh, archery in North Dakota, but I, I spend more time in Minnesota um, and some in South Dakota, and I get over to Wisconsin. Oh, and, nice. And, uh, of course, over the last few years, some, some trips out west. I've got a spot out in Oregon that I spend time elk hunting, and I've been to Alaska several times over the last few years, and... So I get all over, but my core area still remains Minnesota. Nice, nice. So the first thing, I guess we'll transition right into it since we're, you know, we're currently talking about it is, uh, I mean, you've worked for, you know, you've worked for a company that revolves around the outdoors and, and, you know, your main focus was the the hunting side of that. But um, where and when did you get your introduction into the, you know, into hunting? Uh, well, obviously for me growing up in western part of Minnesota, I lived on the edge of a uh, town, uh, Moorhead, Minnesota, and so we kind of started everything out there. Just uh, my dad was was then got me my my rimfire and my shotgun, and and it wasn't about 1978, just before I had the junior in high school, I kind of got involved with archery, and uh, through a friend, and the guy introduced me to the sport, and kind of took off from there and you know, a lot of things come and go, a lot of different types of hunts, you know, whether it be waterfall or upland and and uh, I just really settled into archery, especially for whitetails. I just I uh, think if if passions waned and you had one thing left to do, it would be the last thing that would go in my life would be whitetail hunting with, with bow and arrow. Yeah. And so I kinda of started that in seventy eight and as far as the other stuff, I kinda of, you know, twelve, thirteen years old when I got my first guns and and uh, spent time shooting gophers and stuff like that on the edge of town. And, and that's how things kind of started for me. So what was it, you know, obviously you started with a gun and stuff, but in regards to archery, when you, when you were 17, what was the trigger that, you know, Oh my God, bow hunting is what I'm supposed to be doing in life. What was there a specific trigger or, or something that set you off in that direction? It was, it was almost to the day. I remember it was up at a, at the lake, uh, at a friend's lake, he invited me up to hunt waterfall and, and, um, I mean, everything just so much happened in one day. We just got to his lake and a, a buddy of his came out of the woods and must've been about four or five in the afternoon and, you know, towards dark. And he comes out and he did a quick fist pump and he had just shot a doe. He said, right through the chest. And I remember the look on his face again, I was a junior in high school and it's like, he just was so pumped up about it. And, uh, we hunted waterfall for a, for, you know, a few minutes before it got to sunset. And, and just at dark, a, a teacher from Ward High School uh, came up to the cabin, and he said he just arrowed a buck in a place near Barnesville, Minnesota. And so I went with him and, you know, of course, followed the blood and, and uh, my first blood trailing experience and led to this really nice Pope and Young buck. And both those things happened in the same evening. 
And it was one of those things that was just it's so moving. It's kind of like, you know what? This is really, really cool. And um, I just really took interest from that moment. It was like, you know, these guys look, seen the look on their face and how excited they were. And back in 78, archery was, was there, but it was not nearly what it was today. And uh, and so it was just kind of something new. And, and I, I'd owned, you know, small bows before, but never a compound bow. And so I kind of got in it, you know, based on that, that, that experience of that day. And I'll never forget it. I mean, it's just, just to look on those two guys' face, faces, it just, it just absolutely pushed me to the point where I said, I really got to try this. Right, right. And it took off from there. So how long until that day, until, was it the next season that you had a bow and that you, you know, you were considered yourself a, a bow hunter or did it take some time from that day to get, you know, to maybe like your first bow hunt or your first bow kill? Well, my first bow kill was a doe and I took that, uh, October, it's like the third week of October of 79. So I actually hunted for, you know, for almost two years and then I got my first deer. And again, one of those experiences, never forget your first deer. And, uh, so I took a really mature doe and at that point it was like all the mistakes I made and, and, and it continued to make for years, but you know, things you learn off of and then all of a sudden things all together and you you make that arrow you know hit its mark and and it just at that point it's just kind of like you kind of lose a little enthusiasm you keep making mistakes you can't get close to your quarry and then all of a sudden it comes together and you get one and and then the party's over and it's just uh, you're fired up from that point on right right so your first archery setup was it a compound or was it more of a traditional setup no it was a um a Jennings lightning compound bow, okay. uh, autumn orange XX 75, um, shafts with, uh, with satellite four blade broadheads. That was kind of the start. Okay. So yeah. from, from there, you know, after you shot your, your first deer, you know, your first doe, um, was it kind of a, it's brown, it's down for a while. When did you start you know, becoming serious about, you know, maybe trying to go after bucks or reading sign and, and getting, you know, not just being, you know, a full blown bow hunter, but being a student of the game, so to speak. Well, I think the level of you, when you look at any hunter, it kind of progresses. I teach hunter education here in North Dakota. They've been doing that for you know, almost 20 years. And, and there's certain levels a person goes through and it's, Obviously, the first few years, you're just hoping it's kind of the brown and down thing. It's like anything that gets you know within range, it's 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 game game on. And uh, yeah. so your first buck, you know, I I, I believe it was a you know a, a three by three, and and you get that. It's okay. Now I'm into bucks. Kind of progress from goes. You go okay. I'm going to do bucks only, and then after you get that that you know decent buck, you say okay. I'm going to up the ante here. I'm going to try to get something a little bigger. And I think I took my first. Hope and Young Buck. It wasn't until 1987. I'd taken a couple pretty decent bucks before that time, but it wasn't until 87 before I finally put an arrow into my first Pope and Young Buck. And uh, so that's at that point, once you get that, it's like it raises the bar and the standard each time. And you know, once you get that, it's like, okay, I can't go backwards. I'm going to keep going and trying and, and, and trying to outdo the previous year. Right. So, so from a from a, a buck standpoint were you looking at 
age class? Were you looking at antler size? Um, have you ever been the kind of guy who's been after, you know, I got to shoot a giant racked buck or have you kind of leaned towards the, the mature, you know, I, I'm going to be a mature deer hunter. I would, for the area that I'm in up here and we have decent deer up here, but I've never had the opportunity to hunt on land that's, that's, you know, overrun with 150 plus whitetails. You know, 125 to 140 class bucks is kind of the standard in the properties that I've hunted over the years. And, and, um, same thing for Wisconsin and South Dakota, just, just really, really good areas that have really nice bucks in it, but not, not to the point where I'm going to, I'm going to see 150, 160 bucks on a regular basis. So, it, for me, it's like it's got to make Pope and Young. Uh, it's got to be in that class. You know, one twenty-five and above is kind of is kind of my standard. And obviously, the area that I hunt in Minnesota, I got trail cameras out. I think twenty-two of them out, so I pretty much have a good idea what we've got on the property, and uh, allows me to kind of hold off and wait as long as possible. And uh, every once in a while, things happen where they're supposed to, and sometimes they don't. But Every year there's opportunity or I do get one uh, that would qualify for Pope and Young. Gotcha. So what are the numbers like in, in the area that you hunt in Minnesota? Well, in the area around the lake, it depends on, you know, ag area versus because a lot of big woods in central Minnesota. And where I've got there's really good deer numbers, you know, and they're, they're going up. I've said some really bad winters the last, uh, you know, three, four years ago. I and mean, they kind of took their toll, but, you know, we've got really decent deer where, I mean, you're going to go out on a night, you're going to see, you know, 10, 15, 20 deer average on an evening. And, um, you know, I kind of had that when I had the land close to town here. I'd go out, I had a really great chunk that I actually owned years ago. And and through eminent domain, I ended up losing the property. But, you know, the same thing, you know, you'd get deer one, 125 to 140 was kind of that standard there. And uh, so it's kind of what, you're, what, you, what you pin your hopes on for the fall. And, uh, you know, I haven't had great Wisconsin or, or really good the Iowa properties where, you know, you run into 160 plus deer and we just don't have that calendar of year, possibly genetics and obviously the hunting pressure that you're looking at my Pope and Young magazine today. I always go and look at the states where deer were shot and look at how many deer come from Wisconsin and Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota, kind of in my poor area. And, you know, Minnesota has like a fraction of the entries that you're going to find in Wisconsin or in Iowa. And so I think a lot of it is kind of the management practices of, of the, the DNR here. And I, I just think that, uh, you know, it's, it's led to less deer numbers in some areas and the quality of deer. We just don't have a structured age class of white tails in, in most of Minnesota. Some areas are really good, but unfortunately in the area that I am, it just, you know, hunting pressure on surrounding properties. They just aren't into that letting deer go and letting them grow. Do you guys have a rifle season during your rut? We do. That's the problem with Minnesota. Rifle season typically starts that first weekend in November on, on average. And that's the exact time when deer kind of get on their feet and they start running around and, and chasing hard. And I mean, the, the latest that Minnesota will open up typically might be in that fifth to the eighth is the latest it'll open up, but sometimes it's that second or third of November. And that's just the time when you just flip the switch and the deer really start turning on hard. And it's that time that the, the gun hunters really disrupt what's in the woods, turns deer nocturnal. And, right. and a lot of those big ones make a mistake and they get shot. So it's really difficult to pattern a deer and hunt them. Like I do in Wisconsin, when I travel there, when the guns start in Minnesota, 
I get in the vehicle and I head to Wisconsin because their season opens the weekend before Thanksgiving. And there you get a chance to hunt whitetails the way they're supposed to. And, and, and that is, is through the peak of the rut. Right. right. And I really don't get that chance in Minnesota. We, we lose that there. Now, if you don't mind me asking, you mentioned something earlier about you had a piece of property that you were hunting for a while, but you lost it to eminent domain. Eminent domain. It was kind of on the outskirts on the edge of uh, Moorhead in Minnesota, right across from Fargo. And on the edge of town, and the, and the farmer had sold the land, and and, uh, and then a local organization called Trollwood Performing Arts ended up buying the land through the city, and my my chunk of woods was right in the middle of their project. And uh, literally, the, their amphitheater, where they do all their performances now, is literally, my woods is in the back, and you can look at the show in the stage, and my woods are right behind the stage now. Okay. And they needed the property and, and, and regardless of my, my desire to hunt didn't matter. And, uh, so eminent domain means they came and said, you are going to take your property, you take our offer or, or else type thing. Right. Right. So, so I lost it. So you lost it, but were you at least compensated for it then? Yeah. They, you know, I bought the property it was kind of the time when we were going through those, uh, historic floods up here. And, um, so some of the property had, you know, homes were nearby and they took those out. And, and, um, so again, it was one of those things I was, I was maybe going to lose later on anyhow, just through development of the city moving out there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they compensated me for it and they allowed me to hunt on the property for a couple of years after that until they got, got the project up and going. So I really can't complain of how well they took care of me, allowed me to take the money I got from the property and buy my lake lot. Yeah, uh, I bought a lot, and then, and then the lot turned into a, a cabin, and and then I found some great property up by the lake that actually is better than what I had. So, oh, nice. You know, things happen for a reason, and you know, a lot of things do. And I just think that's one of those things for me. I really fell into some some really lucky uh, scenarios there, and I'm just really a happy man because of it. At this point, right. right? It was convenient for me. It, it was. It was five minutes from my house. I could get off work and, and hop in the car and, and literally five minutes I'd be walking to my tree stand. And, uh, for, I mean, that's just something not many people have. I really had it good for a while there. And, uh, I always believe Dan, there's a beginning, a middle and an end to everything. Right. You know, unless you own your own property, and if you do, it doesn't mean there's a guarantee there, but you know what? It was just at the end of my, my time there, I had really great years out on the property and then something else came up. And, um, so I lost it. So I'm in a place right now that I'm really having a great time with it. Really great gear, really good numbers. And it it was a great move. So I'm really happy. Well, that's good that you, at least it turned into something positive, you know, further down the road for you. Yep. I never thought I'd be eminent domain, but you know what? It happened. And obviously, you know, they needed it and it worked worked for a good cause on their side and, and they took care of me on my end. So I was, uh, I was more than happy with it. So, how many years of bow hunting, Minnesota, until you decided, hey, I want to go try another state like over in Wisconsin or heading to North Dakota or even some of those other Western trips in Oregon or Alaska? Well, for me, it was, I think I started, I stayed in Minnesota until I started hunting elk out west in Montana, uh, late 1990s. Uh, kind of got into that. I can kick myself because I really think that guys are going to start elk hunting that, you know, you really need to start in your twenties and 
the problem with back then in your 20s that elk hunting back then wasn't cheap either is that you had to have the land and you had to have the money to be able to do it yeah. and obviously when you're 20s you know western hunting you looked at, at tags that could run you know seven eight hundred bucks or more then gas money and license everything else is like it, it takes its toll and so you really, until you can afford it, you really can't take advantage of those. So it wasn't until the late 1990s and I started elk hunting out in the Missouri breaks out in Montana and getting out of state. And, and then about the same time I was making trips to Wisconsin and, and I made a trip down to Iowa and hunted whitetails down there. And, and, um, so that's pretty much it. It was, it was, uh, it, it took me a few years, but then once you get out and start seeing other opportunities, it, you know, tipping a deer over in your state you know, shouldn't end your season. There's more out there and, exactly. and being in an area that's game rich up here, like North Dakota and South Dakota, Wisconsin, Minnesota, there's just lots of opportunities up here. So talk to me a little bit about your first couple experiences, um, hunting elk in the Missouri breaks. I've always kind of been fascinated with that area. Well, it's, it's one of those kind of an area. I think Taylor made for bull hunting. If you like the spot and stock, and I think the hunting pressure is pretty intense out there. And unlike the Oregon property that I hunt, you sit down with a cow call because the animals aren't pressured out in Oregon, the spot that we've got. But you, you sit down with a cow call or a bugle in, in the Missouri breaks, and it's almost like a repellent. Yeah. You know, they're kind of used to calling, and they're just not great in that. So everything out there is kind of a spot and stock. And um, so it was kind of nice in Missouri. We kind of, you know, got into boats. We kind of tried to get away from people. So we, uh, more of an inconvenience, but we would haul a boat up there and we'd hop in the boat. And we would hunt from the river and up into the hills where typically the, the other hunters, you know, would kind of like stay within a mile or so of their vehicle. And they tend to push the animals towards the water. And uh, so we started hunting out of boats and, and really, really had great opportunities. And, you know, nine-year water, it's early season, animals would kind of gravitate towards water. But it really allowed you to come in the back door on those animals. And uh, so that's kind of we started. We started getting in those areas and hunting out of boats and, and really having some great success. I heard a 330-inch bull back in 2000. Uh, on a spot in stock and again one of those memorable hunts that just everything kind of fell into place and and um so it kind of got me hooked out there and and uh so i kind of went from there and got into a few hunts in alaska so alaska's kind of taken over over the last few years and i kind of other than my oregon trip i kind of got away from the missouri breaks they went to a draw system out there okay and uh so a little more difficult to get into the area that core plus the area that i hunted in which is area 410 uh, pretty much all burned down had a big fire out there and it was the most timber rich area in the Missouri breaks. And, uh, it burned down. I mean, literally torched the whole thing, which is really good now. I mean, elk kind of moving to those new growth areas. Uh, it is good, but it's just, it's kind of ugly when everything you're hunting and there's really not a lot of trees that, that show life on them. It's pretty parched. Yeah. And, uh, so I kind of got away from that and got into you know, elk hunting in Oregon and then also those trips to Alaska. And uh, so I haven't been back to the breaks for a few years. So why don't you, uh, if you, if you can give us not necessarily the full version of it, but talk to us a little bit about that 330 inch bull that you shot. And, uh, I mean, was it, were you hunting out of the river again, coming up from the back door, like what you mentioned, or was this something completely different? Well, we slid into a, a a bunch of elk and bulls and cows, probably numbering 30 to 40 animals. They were coming up from the south, and, and when I first heard it, I just thought, you know, there's a, there's a couple guys with cow calls down there. 
because it was it was almost like to the point where it's like you couldn't believe there were so many elk and they're so so vocal at that time of the day. And so I came over Ridge Top, and that that valley was just loaded with elk. And um, it, as they kind of moved up, I was able to kind of literally belly crawled up the side of the hill, and uh, and came over the top, worked my way down, got behind a juniper bush just as the last band of the the herd was coming up, and the last animal in the herd was this six by six bull. And uh, it came up right to the point I had time to range, find the area where he was going to pass through. And he, he hit that mark at just about 50 yards. And I made a nice shot right in the rear of the lungs, mid body. And he ran off about a couple hundred yards, tipped over and, and that was it. So it was just one of those things where everything kind of fell into place, but, you know, letting, you know, letting me out kind of get, you know, move one direction coming in on the side and keeping some of the, some of the cover and terrain in between you and the animals, you know, led to my success that day. Right. Right. So we talked at the ATA show a little bit, uh, about, you know, some of your Alaska trips and, you know, mm-hmm. your float trips, you know, you're, you have one guy, another guy go with you, right? One guy has a, a bow, one guy has a rifle, you know, you try to, you try to make it. So the, the guy that you're with, so you can shoot the same bow and then you shoot the same gun. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's just less stuff to carry. Well, that's when we're up there, it's, it's one of those things we just, you know, you, you, you bring a gun, it's kind of a just-in-case deal. And this is an all-do-it-yourself front where, where you know, you, you pay money and you're on your own and, and, you know, you might be sitting on a 10-day hunt and you don't get close to anything for eight, nine days. And all of a sudden you get an animal that doesn't come closer than a couple hundred yards. The rifle gives you the opportunity that you don't have to go home empty-handed. Okay. And, um, so what we do is uh, the guy, I know I took my bow and my rifle and we go up there and it's, it's, it's bow hunting all the way. Unless, unless something happens and not a lot of bulls around or, or they're just not responding to calls. Um, so again, because there was a weight restriction there, we thought, well, if we take one bow, you know, we kind of limit what we can take in there because you're limited to about a hundred pounds per person. And that's all your gear, food, everything is all you can fly in there. So you're really limited on what you can take. So, so we, uh, we took my bow and the, the guy and my hunting partners about the same draw length as I am. And, and he learns to shoot my bow, uh, with my release. And, and that's what we do is so we take off turns. The, the one day is, you know, the one guy kind of packs the rifle because we're in an area that's got, uh, you know, not high numbers, but we, we occasionally run into grizzly bears up there. Okay. And so it's kind of nice having some kind of backup protection just in case they get temperamental. Uh, but the other point is that, you know, when, when, when it's your turn, you get the kill that day. So you have the option of either taking it with the bow and get close, you get the gun kill. And the next day your partner carries the bow and you carry the rifle. If he doesn't get close enough, he takes the rifle and makes the shot. Gotcha. And, uh, so this year we didn't have the rifle stayed in camp most of the time. And, and, uh, I got my bow on the second day of the hunt and, uh, my partner had arrowed one on the seventh day of the hunt. And uh, we never found him. He just, uh, you know, made a shot a little bit high, and we just didn't recover that bull. Okay. So but, uh, we, uh, was this something where you flew into a base camp or took a boat to a base camp and then hunted from there the entire the entire week? Or? Well, we flew into Bethel, and there's uh, the uh, outfitter, Papa Bear Adventures. Uh, he's got his base uh, camp there in Bethel. And he's got float planes and he's okay. got a, a beaver 
and he's got a um, like a, a small, you know, I don't know what uh, which which the Cessna some it's a, it's a two person, and so we take those up in a party of four. So in this spot we had this float, we guys like you know a group of two will go one direction, the other group of two will go the other direction. So they carry us all up there on the Beaver. We land in a larger body of water, and they take the smaller plane. And they'll bring us into this other area one at a time from this lake. And then we'll just inflate some rubber rafts and, and kind of portage them to our, our campsite and we'll hunt out of that. And then if there's no moose there and your, your, your initial stop, you float down the river, you stop, you meet camp, call for a few days, you know, pull camp and, and start floating again. That's kind of the way it works. And, and uh, we didn't have to, we, and we got all of our bowls. Um, you know, a buddy of mine shot a, a 67 inch bowl. I called in for him on the fourth day. And I mean, we got all of our activity right there. One guy was a rifle hunter. He took that the first day. And uh, so we had really, really good numbers of bowls, literally right around camp. We didn't have to do much floating. Right. So walking up on your very first elk, what was, uh, I guess, from, you know, from hunting whitetail your entire life until you hit, you know, until you killed your very first elk, what's the size difference between, you know, that, that difference from a, a whitetail to an elk, what's the size difference from an elk to a moose? Uh, well, moose are probably closer to dinosaurs, their size when you first walk up to them. Yeah. They're just, I mean, you can't, I mean, you look at the pictures of guys posing with moose, uh, the Alaska Yukon, especially that, you know, you, you take pictures where those animals weigh, you can't like each, each guy grab a leg and, and, and turn them around to get in a, in a position for a picture. They are where they lay and that's where you take your, your pictures. So if they fall in the water, you're done. That's where you take your pictures. And, yeah. and they're just enormous animals. You can't pick the antlers up on this animal and, and just hold it for a shot like you would maybe for a whitetail or an elk. And there's such an enormous animal that the, the, the headgear, the antlers on those things, I think they, they tape in between 60 and 80 pounds alone just for the, the antlers. Right. Uh, the, the cape of a, of a moose, when I flew my cape home from a bull I shot a few years ago, uh, from the chest to the nose, the cape by itself weighed 100 pounds. And so you take the, you take antlers and the cape alone and you start throwing their skull and everything else in there, just the head neck area that just, they're so massive, you know, you can't, you know, you like, you think you want to prop your animal up, get them, you know, tuck their legs under for a nice shot. Like you would a whitetail does not happen with a moose. You just cannot physically move their, these animals because they're pushing, you know, probably somewhere between 11 and 1400 pounds. And they're so, I mean, they're just absolutely becoming when you walk up to them, like just something you've never experienced. It's kind of like you walk up to that first when you go, wow, now what do I do? Because <laughs> there's one thing with Alaska, you have to, you cannot debone moose up there. You've got to pack all that meat out, including the bones on the hips. So you're taking the, uh, moose quarters out that are pushing 120 to 140 pounds for a rear quarter. And it's, it's, it's all the meat and bones. You have to pack that out one at a time. So just give you an idea, just one quarter, of a hip is pushing 140 pounds where in some areas, a good size whitetail buck would be pushing field rest 140 pounds. Right. Right. You know, and that's just a quarter. And so it did give you an idea of the size of those things. They're just enormous animals. Right. So how long did it take you from the time that you shot your bull moose to the time you got it? back to wherever it was that you were 
getting it for that 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 day. Now I'm not talking about mm-hmm. flying the meat back to the base camp. I'm mm-hmm. talking about from where it landed or where it expired to the point where okay, now we can fly out. We were about where I shot that we had to actually go up kind of a you know, not a mountain but a, a decent sized hill. And what we did then is that you you know if you shoot a moose early in the hunt, and that's the thing when you're in September, you get some really warm weather up there. So you've got to keep the meat you know, really preserved and cool. Otherwise, if you fly back and your meat's spoiled, they make you pay to fly 100% of that meat home. Yeah. So we, we put it up, we fastened up on poles, we hang poles up in trees, we rope some, some log poles up, and we, we have game bags, and we strap it to them. And so, anyhow, I kept it up there and kept it cool and kept the water off it. And then each day thereafter, since we hunted from our base camp there, we would walk up, my partner and I would walk up with a pack, we'd load a quarter, and it was exactly a half mile from the kill spot uh, to back to camp. So you make trips, you probably took eight trips to get all that meat back. And uh, you, you walk up and you, you put a, a quarter on your pack and walk half mile down, then you'd hang it back at camp until you float out of there. And then when you float out of there, of course, you're going to float down to your pickup point, which is about 15 miles uh, of river to cover. And if you stop along the way, you got to take the meat out, you got to keep it cool. But, um, again, about a half mile, but we got lucky this time that the, the two other bulls that we killed were right close to the river, so we didn't have to work too hard to get them. But mine, you know, I killed it a half mile from the pickup point, uh, our, our base camp. So just kind of trekking back and forth. And it's kind of some ugly terrain because that, that tundra up there is just sometimes it's like you're walking in a, in a, on a waterbed. Yeah. And uh, so you can put a hundred and some pounds on your back trying to get you those things. It's just... It's it's just it's it's a workout, and I'm telling you, I say tell people do it at a younger age. It just absolutely wears you down. It's a yeah. tough hunt. I can imagine that. I can imagine. Yeah. That. So, whitetail, elk, moose. What else have you killed? Uh, caribou. I've hunted caribou Northwest Territories and also in Quebec. Right. Uh, I've hunted antelope in Wyoming. Okay. Uh, I've shot alligators with bow down in florida <laughs> all righty um so other than that you know i'm gonna do my i'm gonna hunt mule deer this fall i haven't been on a mule deer hunt yet where are you going for that and i'm gonna go out in western north dakota for that okay right i've uh i went out to uh nebraska western nebraska for uh in the sand hills for my uh first mule deer hunt didn't get an opportunity at a at a buck but saw lots of lots of does. I think I just went too early in the season to mm-hmm. see any type of movement, but, um, that's, uh, definitely elk and mule deer at this point in my life are on depth on top of the, you know, top of my bucket list for, for wild game species. Yeah. Well, I tell you, when you start looking at, at bucket lists, that's for me too. I just obviously since I'm retired now, I just look at these things I always wanted to get. And, you know, I, I went on a mountain goat hunt here a couple of years ago up in Alaska. Um, this was a rifle hunt. I just, you know, when you spend that much money on one, it just, you know, they're not cheap hunts. And it's yeah. like, if you don't get one, you want to go again. It's like, here you go. And, you know, it's when you get up there in that country up there, you know, we, we were sat in a boat for three days before we could get out and hunt just because of the weather. Yeah. So you go up for a seven to 10 day hunt and you might only get two or three days to hunt. And in within those days, you're lucky to get an opportunity and you climb for those animals. So when you're putting that much money down, it's kind of like, you know, just, I'm going to get it with a rifle this time, but you know, obviously for me, I'd love to get a sheep sometime. And obviously it's high on my list to try to do it with the bow, but 
your doll sheep right now is the cheapest sheep and you're pushing 20, 22 grand for that. Stone Ooh. sheep are probably 35 grand and a big horn, you're probably talking 45, 50 grand for it. And I just, although I'd like to do it, it's, if you go up there, you don't get one, they still charge you that much. Exactly. Exactly. It's tough. So it's, um, that's you gotta know a, the area you're going and you're ready for it. That's a huge commitment. I mean, almost more financially than anything. Yes. Man. It's hard to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow. It's like, if you ever want the opportunity to do it, there's no such thing. Cause all those hunts, they require a guide. You can't just right. go and do it, do it like moose. You can do it yourself, which this Papa bear adventures that we go to is one of those things. It's a do it yourself. You know, they fly into an area that's, that's got animals in it. They drop you off. Once you drop you off, you're hundred percent on your own. You can't do that for grizzly bears and, and sheep and goats anymore. You have to have a guide to do that. And yeah. when you start doing guided hunts, there's nothing is cheap anymore. Even a guided moose hunt probably push you, you know, 12, 14 grand now, you know, this hunt that we go on, I can do this do it yourself hunt in a moose rich area for, for five grand. Yeah. Right. So is that, um, is the reason that all these animals are, have to be guided like the sheep and the grizzly bear? And I'm asking this cause I've, I have, I have done no research or don't know anything about sheep hunts, but is that because the terrain is so rough or, and, and that it's best to have an experienced person with you or why, why do they have to ha- have mandatory outfitters for some of these hunts? I think with a lot of things, like, you know, they still, for whatever reason, they still allow moose to be done, do it yourself. And which, again, they're very strict on that. You can't, you can't take your antlers out right away. If your antlers, your cat, your antlers are the first thing off your kill site, you're fine. Okay. Um, you, your animals, all, there's a restriction area. You can't shoot in some areas of the last an animal with less than 50 inches or four brow tines. And, so an inexperienced person being able to judge an animal that's at least 50 inches or greater is difficult. Right. But to know let you do that. But the other ones is, is, I think a lot of it might be an economic thing that obviously it gives the, you know, the, the locals in the area opportunity to make additional money off of guided hunts. Uh, obviously animals are, there's much less like mountain goats, for example. They're just not so many of them running around. They just want people kipping them over. So they want to make sure that, you know, if you hit an animal like the mountain goat hunt, we had a person there that hit one and didn't recover it. His hunt was over. They don't let you go out and shoot another mountain goat. He hit one and hit it high in the in the back, and we never recovered that animal. His hunt was over. Man. You know, you just can't go and pop. So, obviously, you want to make sure that there's somebody there experienced helping you call the shot. Yeah. And, sure. um, you know, recovering the animal and be able to pack it out, make sure you get 100% of the animal at once. So, obviously, some great advantages to guided hunts. Yeah. Makes and uh, so that's a lot of it. it obviously, it's, it's a preservation thing. You, you preserve the animals by not having inexperienced people just making bad shots, not recovering it, or wasting any part of the animal. Yeah, makes uh, a lot of sense. So I think there's a lot of things, economics and, and obviously those other things, safety-wise. It's rugged country up there. And I've been in some situations in tree stands, and I've killed a lot of deer out of tree stands just by standing in the branches of a tree. And and obviously, I look back, it's not a wise thing to do, but for me, it worked, and there's just some areas in closest that I had the feeling of pending doom and dying was that mountain goat hunting, hanging on the side of a cliff, and yeah. and not be able to go up or sideways. You just sit there in one slip of the shoe, and you're just gonna you're gonna somersault to the bottom. And if you live at all, you won't be walking again. 
It's just that type of terrain. And so obviously when you have somebody up there that experiences, like you're not put in a situation where you, you might lose life or limb. Right. Yeah. So do you have any experience to do other countries like, uh, Africa? Uh, you know what? Africa is not on my, my, my bucket list. I've been over to Austria and I have taken a chamois over in Austria. Okay. And, uh, so that's kind of different. That's a mountainous hunt. And it's just like their, their version of a mountain goat, okay. uh, smaller animal, they're blonde instead of white. And, um, but I've got, I, I really don't have any, you know, at this point in time, near or far future, any desire to go over to Africa. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's the same way with me. I, at this point in my time, there's an, enough animals in North America that I need to cross off before I, you know, do anything past that. Exactly. I mean, I'd rather I'd rather turn into a really good mule deer hunter or a really exceptional elk hunter before I want to come home with a, a kudu or a blessed buck or a gazelle or something. I just, you know, I've been, and again, not to take anything away from the guys that do that. They go over there and they, they love the experience, but, you know, you, you taxidermy an animal over there and people come look at it and they kind of go, what is it? Yeah. You know, and we can't, people, we can't relate to the animals that are, that are over there. Exactly. And, um, I, I just, you know, for that reason, and some of the way that, that the hunts are done over there, a lot of it's enclosure type hunting and it's over a, a, a water source, for example. And, and I just, you know, I, I love the spot and stock. I love the calling aspect of hunting. And for a lot of areas you go over there, they just, just don't match my type of hunting style. It's like, I want to spot and stock or I want to call the animal. I don't want to sit in the blind on a water hole, uh, with a menu of, of choices of what to shoot that comes in for a drink. Right. Yeah. You know, that, that just isn't my thing at this point. Uh, obviously maybe in the future I might change my mind, but right now I've got so much to do here, you know, with elk and mule deer and whitetail and, and we're booked for moose again up in Alaska in 2018. I just can't get it out of my system. I just got to <laughs> go again. The last one I got, I mean, the, the one before this last fall, I got done and we, we collapsed on the meat pile at our pickup point. And I just told the partner I was with, I said, I'm done. I'm not going to go moose hunting again. And we weren't halfway home. And I looked at him and said, we got to do this again. <laughs> and so we did it again. I went out last fall and he had great success. And probably the hunt of my life was last fall for moose. And, and I got back and I booked it again. Oh boy. And not that I'm a glutton for punishment, but you know what? I'm 55 years old and I can do a lot yet. And, and I just know that this hunt that we're doing isn't something you're going to be able to do when you hit 65 or 70. So I'm just kind of on this this advanced bucket list thing as I want to do these things before I can't do them anymore. Right, right. That makes a lot so, of sense. Oh, I just, I, I can't get it out of you. When you, when, you, when, you <laughs> when you see those animals, even if you're not shooting at them, they're such an impressive animal, Dan. It just gets in your system and you can't get enough of it. Right. That, and that's how and, I feel uh, about these Western hunts that I'm going to start taking. Uh, here pretty soon you know like this year i'm not going to be able to go because of you know several different reasons but next year i'll be going on another elk hunt or and possibly an antelope hunt so i don't know it's something where you go once and it's just in your head every day for until you get that fix again yep you know it gets into it gets into you and until you go out there you don't really know what it's like and and I don't know, sometimes I think if I had to do my life over again, you know, I'd love to be somewhere out in Wyoming or Montana because it's so game rich out there. Yep. Yep. I would just have, it's like, I love Alaska, but it's so brutal up there. You're like, it's either rugged or nothing. 
Right. Where, you know, Montana is like, look, you want to be flatland and antelope, or you want to go up in Missouri breaks and do elk, you want to go in the mountainous area and, you know, do bighorns or, or mountain goat or something. That's where that action is. And I love Wyoming and Montana. I really do. I just, once you go out there, it just gets into your system. And you just, you just want to be there. Exactly. Especially I got, you know, buddies out there who, uh, you know, I go on a drive, I see turkey and I see whitetail. They go on mm-hmm. a drive. They see elk, they see antelope, they see mule deer, they see moose, they see bears. You know, it's like all in one trip too. So yeah. I get a little jealous. Yep. It's just, it's just one of those things that just, once you go there and when I traveled for my job with Shields, I just, you know, I'd get out there in Montana, travel by myself. And almost every time on cue, I'd call my wife and say, we got to move out here. <laughs> and she wasn't pulling stakes and moving out, but every time, and if she would have said, yeah, I'd move there, I would have been there. Oh yeah. You know, and obviously you have ties back home here. It's just such cool country. And when you drive the foothills of the crazy mountains in central Montana, you kind of look at it and go, you know what, whatever reason it makes you want to stop your car and climb to the top, just because you don't have that back at home here. Exactly. Crazy feeling, but it's just the country gets into you and you just can't get enough of it. Amen. Amen. All right. So now we're going to do a, a, a big change in topics here. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your time spent at Shields. And um, mm-hmm. for those of you guys who don't know what that is, that is, it's it's a version of Bass Pro Shop. It's a version of Cabela's. It's a it's a sporting goods store, and they have a you know the one here where I live close to in Iowa City. Um, they have a gigantic archery you know, section and and a gun section and, you know, camping and hunting and everything a guy would need, you know, to, to be a hunter, they got it. But how many years did you say you worked there before you retired? Uh, just like three months short of 29 years. Okay. So you worked there quite a, quite a long time. And, um, you were a buyer, right? For a while. Okay. So you, you and I guess other guys would determine what products get to come in and uh, were you specifically archery or did you do all, all sorts of outdoors? I was, I was the archery buyer for all stores and I was the optics buyer. So binoculars, rifle scopes, spotting scopes, that, uh, that division also. So I did both of those. Gotcha. All right. So I want to talk about that for a little bit and I want to, you know, there's several, 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 brands and there's of those brands there's you know you know several several different you know versions of whatever that brand is and and the first thing that comes to my mind is like broadheads mm-hmm. when when you guys get all these products and have to sort through them obviously you're a business and obviously this business is in to make some kind of profit but let's separate that for a second and talk a little bit about what you guys look for in products to bring them into your store? Well, the one thing that we, we have, yeah, we have a shield store spread all the way as far as Reno, Nevada, all the way out to Appleton, Wisconsin, and down to Springfield, Illinois, and on Kansas. And we'll be opening a few years in, uh, like next year, they're going to be in, in Colorado and then eventually in Texas. And so each store is autonomous, meaning that obviously their, their guys can, they not only have to stop the recommended list that we put out as a buying team, but each area geographically might have something more popular that they are free to stop on their own. 
Mm-hmm. So obviously two years, you know, we, we put a product in and, and like anything, if you look at the selection of all the branded arrows and tree stands and broadheads and broadheads, you know, 75, 85 grain, 90 grain, 100, 125s, 150s, yeah. there's, there's not enough room on your shelf to stock every one of them. And, you know, it's just, we'd love to be able to, at Seals, we would love to be able to cater to a hundred percent of everybody out there. But you just can't. There's just not enough room and peg hooks on the shelves to be able to put the product on. So you kind of have to narrow it down to like what's selling in the market. You know what what sold last year for a specific broadhead like Rage or Muzzy, and in what quantity, and how did it sell for all of our stores? And obviously, when it when it sold well for all of our stores, it made the product mix for the following years. So. We had these stores working as a team, and if they sold something really well in their markets, okay, well, let's try it in these other markets to see how well they would do. And so we, we garnered our success by that. Guys that were running the shops, that were passionate bow hunters, they knew the products, and they weren't afraid to try different things. So as a buying team, we go to the ATA Archery Show in January, where we make our selection, we build our program based on the successes that we had in previous years of the product. And what worked well new products for some of our stores during the previous year. And that would make the product listing for the next year. So it's great when you got we don't have somebody in our shops, for example, that doesn't that don't does not have any archery experience. Passionate archers that love to sell Ozonics machines and Matthews bows or Hoyt bows or Bear bows or PSC bows or whatever. And they allow us to, to build a, you know, based on geographical areas, build a program that we would hope would fit 80 to 90% of our, our customer base. Right. Okay. So when you say 80, 80 to 90% of your customer base, does that mean that you may not have a product in your store that is of an extreme high end that maybe some of your customer base would never, never buy. And I'm going to use Ozonics as an example because it is a higher end product or the Sitkas of the world, you know, it's a higher end product compared to some of the other stuff that's on the market. Um, Mm -hmm. Although there, the, the competition may not be, I guess, comparable to it. But it, it's still a high-end product that, you know, if a guy has to choose between, you know, arrows and broadheads or an Ozonics or an additional tree stand or, or an Ozonics, you know, the Ozonics might get pushed or that higher-end item might get, you know, pushed to the a different, you know, I, I can't afford it straight up. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you guys determine what high-end products you guys would pull in for that smaller customer group? or a customer, uh, you know what I mean? Well, like, like anything, I was told, told people we have, we have big fishing shops in our store and, and we realize there's people that fish for sharks, but we don't stock any shark fishing equipment in the stores. Even though there might be some guys that do it, we say, look, if you put it on our shelf, it's highly likely that it wouldn't sell. However, if, if there's somebody in one of our stores to say Iowa city, who was a shark fisherman, and every once in a while, they have some shark guys come in, and he wanted to bring in a couple things that might cater to his local shark fishing market. They would allow him to do that. Okay. And let's see, being autonomous per store. So I'll be honest with you, there's some stores that did extremely well with uh, Ozonics machines, for example, or a certain high-end tree stand like Lone Wolf. Yeah. 
yep. where other markets wouldn't sell them very well. Same thing for optics. There's some stores that would sell high-end optics like Swarovski or Leica or Zeiss, where some other markets really wouldn't. And a lot of that would have to do with, uh, I guess, the level of, of passion that maybe the salesperson might have, the level of knowledge they have to be able to sell that type of product. And it kind of trickles right down to the smallest item in archery. If, if they're using it and they're, they're, they believe in it, they're going to bring the customer to it. So if you've got a guy like myself, I mean, I was like, I was one step away from maybe having a tattoo on my left shoulder blade that said Ozonix on it. <laughs> you know, that's how, that's how what that machine did. I said, this is really cool. And, you know, but obviously my job was to travel all of our stores and it was to, to train the other people in stores to sell these products. And there's some times that my passion level wouldn't, you know, wouldn't bleed over to some people and they wouldn't buy into it. Yeah. And so some stores would do very well with them while some stores struggled with them. And I think a lot of it is the, the ability of the guys in the shop to be able to sell high-end things. And it's not the same in every one of our stores. So one might one store might sell a lot of them. Some might sell an occasional one. So, so with with some of the, you know, you 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 have experienced bow hunters and that's just one thing that i've noticed in the hunting when i go there to get my bow serviced or i get fletchings on put on my arrows or whatnot or if i have questions about a product you guys like you said the guys who are working there and this is from my experience are hardcore hunters as well so they're going to be able to answer any almost any question you have if not find it for you but yes every every hunter you know, like you probably like a certain type of bow and it may different from my different type of bow. So if you have all these different people with that are working for your company that have different um, opinions on different products, do you guys ever run into a scenario as a, a quote unquote big box store that you that you have to say, okay, we really need to push this product, even though the guy may not use it or know it. We need we need to get X brand X brand broadhead to move so we can make room for more or you know something else where that guy's mm-hmm. like, well, hey, I don't I don't use that product. I have no knowledge of it, but I then have to become a salesman. Do you, you know, mm-hmm. from a retail perspective, do, did you have to cross bridges like that? We did all the time, and that's one thing with archery. I just—it's one of—I'll never forget, Dan. That you know, I look at the success rates, and I study this a lot for each state. And on average, bow hunter success rate might run anywhere from twenty-five to thirty-five percent, which to me means that sixty-five to seventy-five percent of the hunters out there every year are not putting a tag on a deer. Right, and that's our customer. The guy that's coming in every year and looking for a new broadhead, let's just say he shot a, uh, a wasp broadhead for years. All of a sudden, you know, he's, he's the guy that's willing to change and go with a rage broadhead or a muzzy broadhead or some other expandable because he, he wanted, he wants to join the ranks of the successful archer. And I'll never forget that our customer typically isn't the guy that shoots a poking young buck every year. That guy's got the business and the, and the hunt. And the sport figured out the guy that, that doesn't put his tag on a deer every year. That's our core customer. And I never would lose sight of that. That's the guy that, that we would set our program up and, and buy product and, and train our people on is that it's, it's something new. 
And the guy that's not getting it is, is willing to change, go from a Matthews bowl to a Hoyt bowl or to an elite bowl or a Bowtech bowl. And they're willing to change bows or arrows or broadheads or, or use a different scent or try an Ozonics machine because they want to enter the ranks of, this, of, of that, that 25 to 35% success rate. And that's where we kind of build from. And it's like target archers. You know, we didn't sell a lot of target equipment. It's just a different person, like the serious trap shooter. You know, they have to have a specific gun and a specific load, just like the target archer. It's this bow, this arrow, and that really wasn't our base. Our, our base was the 65% that, you know, they're, they're looking to try something new, something new to, to become a successful archer. That's what, that's why I never lost sight of that. And that was the core of our business. Nice. Yeah. That makes a, definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, this is kind of a broad question for you, but when you started working at Shields and up until the time that you retired, how has, this is a two, kind of a two part question, but how has Mm -hmm. the hunting industry changed over that period of time? And how have the products changed over that time? That, that is a great question, and I bet I talked to somebody about that, you know, almost on a weekly basis, but when I was, when I was working there, we, we'd talk about it all the time, and, you know, technology has kind of got to a point where, for several years, archery was just, I mean, it was hot. I mean, you could, like, you could almost tie a buck knife to the piece of rebar, and that was your arrow, and people would shoot it. It just, not literally, but it's like everything was, everything worked. Yeah. The bow technology was changing. Aero technology went from aluminum to carbon. And it, it just, there was so much there and there was so much excitement in the industry that people were like trying something new and the bows were faster and flatter and quieter and less vibration. And so that technology is kind of plateaued where, you know, if you were to go in a time capsule and you bought a bow five years ago and you just came out today and you came in, you're going to get a new bow and hoping to come in and find a bow that's smoother, faster, quieter you might be very surprised and shocked to find out that the technology hasn't changed that significantly in the last five years to make you want to say, I got to buy this new bowl. Yeah. Uh, there was the same thing. We've kind of reached that point where bowls are at the top end of their efficiency rating. And we're never probably going to find a bowl that's off the shelf and shoot 400 feet per second. They just, the, the, the bowl might not hold up to it. And the arrow might not hold up to that. These are the materials we have. So that side of technology has kind of plateaued. Uh, somewhat. So new things like ozonics machines, things like that is kind of the, the trail cameras. You know, those things kind of breathe new life and excitement into the archery industry and get people you know, back and more involved. Um, the other side of it to your question is so how has archery changed over the years? And again, there's another thing where you know, if you saw a Pope and Young Buck you know, back when I started hunting late 70s, if you shot one with a bow, I mean, you were like you know, you were like the king. I mean, guys that would shoot us, like, you were it. You get your name in the paper and everything. And and so, obviously, technology advanced, and people started taking, you know, more deer and bigger deer. But there's a lot of things that have changed that, you know, I think a lot of the ways these hunting shows have changed the sport of archery somewhat. And, and I don't know if it's for the better or for the worse, but obviously, when you look at these shows and these guys are tipping over pulping young bucks, guys are watching thinking that, they're going to be able to walk out, pop in a tree stand, use this scent or this camel clothing, this bonus arrow, and all of a sudden they're going to tip over a 140-inch 5 by 5 Right. You know, and I think they can kind of like, they can distort the, the, 
the sport a little bit uh, because it just may give them a false sense of, of reality that you know, archery is a is a close range sport. With, with guns, you're hunting start and end at 500 yards. For archery, your hunt doesn't even begin until the deer starts getting closer than 100 yards. Right. That's never going to change. But you know, I think a lot of things these shows um, again, a lot of times I think they they haven't haven't been the best. Sometimes, obviously, they help promote product and. They help sell product and things like that. But sometimes for some hunters, they watch and go, boy, that looks easy. And they get out and they try it and they get discouraged and they get out of the sport. And I'm living proof that, look, I made a lot of mistakes. And it took me years to figure it out. And I did it before the shows were out there. And I don't know what it would be like if I was watching these shows and I couldn't get close to a doe, for example. I might get discouraged. Right. It's almost like they they take away this is one thing that i've noticed is they take away the it's more like reality television you know the star of the show is a human and mm-hmm. when in my opinion the star of the show needs to be the animal that they are hunting and yeah. that that's just kind of my personal opinion but from you know from a marketing standpoint how have things changed in the in the industry in regards to product well, I think, uh, like, again, things have changed. I think the Internet's done a lot to that. I think that the accessibility of the product is you can kind of find it anywhere you want. And obviously what separates things now are having really great, passionate people in your shops and having the right product at the right time of the year. I mean, that's what's, that's what's changed as far as the marketing side. It's, it's, it's not so much product anymore, but it's your people. And, you know, really experience passionate archers talking to customers is is everything you know you just can't like put product on yourself like you might find it some box where it's showed in and there's nobody there to help you you're kind of on your own where right now through marketing and display and people all those things together are, are making the industry because you can find almost every product wherever you want to on amazon or or any other mail order type place but they, they lack personality and they lack passion. And that's where the sport has it. So we market our, you know, through Shield, marketing really great people, passionate people that love the industry and love the sport, really helps drive that industry and the sport greater and, and pushes it um, further down the road. Right. So how has the internet changed the... I guess change the the retail side of the hunting industry and has it has it affected what you guys bring into the stores because um maybe what you thought was popular wasn't at, you know wasn't popular or or vice versa I think it's done a lot to it, it, it may put a lot of product out there in front of people uh, that you normally wouldn't see anywhere else. And obviously before the internet really got going on, you know, I'll use the example of, if you remember the cough silencer. Oh yeah. I mean, there was an infomercial on that. And I remember, I mean, just crystal clear when that thing first came out, it was first mail order. Then they allowed you know, retailers to sell it. And we sold little hundreds or thousands of them down. And then <laughs> they went from a, a few thousand to a few hundred. And then it's just a few, and then to nothing, and now there's no you don't even find it on the shelf anymore. Right. You know, so obviously that marketing standpoint got it out, and go a guy goes, yeah, you know, I get up and I cough sometimes, and, and yeah, I need that thing. And on top of the other, you know, 
multiple pounds of gear you're carrying out into a tree stand with, you know, right. it's like, Hey, I have to have that. And, and so I think it's the same thing where the internet allows, you know, it might put a face on a new product that you might not hear or see for a few years. It, it gives it a quicker exposure than it did before where it took, uh, you know, some people using it word of mouth for people to find out. It's like, if there's something new and cool, it doesn't take long to find it on YouTube somewhere and the word to spread really quickly. So things have spread like wildfire. A new product that took years to develop in the past and get popular now can get popular in a matter of weeks or months. Right. So on some of these products like an acorn cruncher, if you ever heard of that. or I have. Or yeah. um, the black rack or something that, yeah, it may work, but it's more of a gimmick product. How do you guys distinguish, like, I'm sure there's, there's products that you guys take in because you know it's going to sell to somebody, but it's almost like kind of a laughing, you know, it's a little bit laughable at some of your meetings. You're like, okay, well, we're going to bring it in because some some schmuck's going to buy it. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have, I mean, can you give us maybe an example of a product like that or maybe why uh, why you would bring in a product like that to to a retail location? Well, there's like every, there's some things that come out that, that obviously they border on being far fetched. And, but you know, what? like every product that's out there is that somebody's got an idea. Uh, you know, it's just invention, the mother necessity to necessity. People, I need this item, a cough silencer or, or, a, or a puncher. A guy heard a deer make that noise one day. and said, you know what? I wonder how this will work. I remember when grunt calls first came out. Yeah. I, it was yesterday, I remember that first grunt call, and guys coming in and go, boy, I tell you what, this works so well, they're going to ban these things, type thing. And, <laughs> and it just, that's kind of how it was. The Ozonic's the same thing. It's like, man, if it works as well, they're going to ban it. And, and uh, you know, it just it's, it's through marketing and guys trying, and even that far-fetched thing, it happened for a reason. If somebody tried it, they came up with an idea, and they, 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 they made it work, they marketed it right, got people to try it, and then, you know, through maybe some success, the word spread. And like I said, you know, the cough silencer is one thing, is it that, that, that acorn cruncher thing, you kind of look at it and go, you know, I, and I really tried not using what I believe, regardless of what I thought, that I might like it or dislike it, it didn't matter. What mattered is what will the 65% of the people that don't enter the ranks of the successful hunter review, what will they think of it? Right. Will they want to try it to maybe help their success for this fall? And uh, that's kind of, I never lost sight of that. And, and there's some things that I got to be honest with, I'd shake my head and go, no way. <laughs> and then lo and behold, it just, it comes out and it starts selling and, and you kind of, you kind of look back and go, yeah, I can see that. But it never was a deterrent not to bring it in regardless of what I, I thought, you know, like gear scent, for example, you know, scent elimination sprays. And, you know, of course, in the mind of the, of, of the, the manufacturer or supplier, they all work. Of course, their product is better than the next guys, you know, but what it gets down to is that, eventually because of the internet and then other hunters, the hunting fraternity, it'll weed its way through attrition. It's just going to wear itself out of the market because it doesn't work. Right. And, but you know what? We bring it in because somebody looked at it. They saw it. Kind of neat idea. Uh, you know, broadheads, expandable broadheads, certain types of broadheads. It's just like, you look at it and go, man, that's really like, 
I mean, it reminds me of a flux capacitor from Back to the Future. And it's like, you know what? Hey, you know what? Hey, if you put on the shelf and it's new, and that 65% of the, the customers that are looking to fill their tag wants to try it, hey, we're going to bring it in. If it starts to sell, great. We'll, we'll add it, put it in the program again for next year, and we'll bring more of them in. You know, so that's how, how the business kind of works. And, and regardless of what I thought, because I'm telling you, I can tell you things that I look at that just were silly and this is no way this thing's going to sell. And lo and behold, it would sell. Right. right. You know, I can't tell you how hard I'd push like, you know, the, the ozone principle and you know how, how that, how well that would work. And it was, it was a constant uphill battle. And, you know, when you, you try to sell a centilimation spray, for example, you can actually see and feel here you have something that spits air out in, uh, in the form of ozone and try to get people to buy into that said, hey, I haven't pulled the deer's nose from all this stuff that's been sold through the years. Why do I think a machine that spits ozonated air out is going to all of a sudden allow me to get away with murder in a tree stand? Right. Lo and behold, you know, it, it took word of mouth some, some guys trying it and going, hey, there's something to this. And I got away with something tonight that I never would have got away with any other year using a spray or an attractant or anything like that. There's something there. And that's kind of what it takes for the other product. It's like if they come out and say, hey, this thing, this is it. And you get guys that buy into it and then they can bring that passion to the customer. Then it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's all downhill for that, that product. It means it's going to, it's going to go. Yep. So, one of the last questions I have for you is, you know, as a bow hunter, we spend a lot of time um, debating on what products we should buy. You know, we, we, we're doing research, we're reading reviews, you know, we may have some kind of experience with it. What advice would you give a person looking to buy bow hunting equipment um, or any hunting equipment for that matter, you know, when it comes between you know, product A versus product B or not necessarily product, you know, like two broadheads or spending a hundred dollars on broadheads or putting that hundred dollars to a tree stand or something like that. Any advice for purchasing? I, I, I think a lot of it, you know, for using the example of tree stands, you know, a, a hang on tree stand could be anywhere from $250 for a lone wolf down to, 35 to 40 bucks for a, for a basic you know, metal steel strap on stand. And there's a lot there. And it's like, you know, I like to say like anything, a good pair of shoes or a car or whatever you get, what you pay for out of it. But it doesn't necessarily mean I'm, I'll tell you that, you know, for archery and stuff, I bring a guy in lane regardless of what I shoot, I'd bring him into the shooting lane and say, look, here's, here's four flagship model bows, Bowtech, Hoyt, Matthews, elite don't listen to what i do because damn you might feel something different with the bowl playing it back than what i'm going to feel you know i like a solid wall somebody might like a soft wall uh when you get to full draw and it's it's also in the mind of the person that's shooting it every broadhead put in the right spot of a deer will kill that deer you know if you put that right in the bread basket in the wheelhouse of the deer regardless the broadhead it's not going to come apart and it's not the deer's not going to run away and live. It's all a shot placement. Every arrow that's that shot on a bow has the capacity of killing a deer. Um, so all those things, every camouflage product out there, clothing has the potential to to hide your 
your your silhouette so the deer doesn't see you under the right situation. So I think with, with those things, it's like when I'm telling a new guy, I says, look, at, uh, a, a bull package brand new for $500 will kill a deer just as efficiently and effectively as a $1,500 bull package. Right. It, it will. What it gets down to is archery is and always will be a close-range sport. You you don't look the the ozone machine for example might help you get closer to the deer, but it's still the 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 side to it is that you have to get close to the deer. And fifteen hundred dollars won't get you any closer to the deer than a five hundred dollar bull, for example. You got it. You got to hone your skills, and you gotta you gotta understand the game that you're pursuing. And like I said, I killed, I, I probably killed more Pope and Young Bucks standing in branches of a tree, Dan, than out of a tree stand. No lie. And I, I, I didn't tell many people that, but, you know, I, I'm not saying it was the right thing to do, but I'd be walking around and go, you know, I don't have a stand. I'm going to a stand. That tree is better. I'd find a way to wedge myself up in the branches and, and get myself into a, a shot placement. You know, so it's not that the tree stand makes a difference. I hunt out of lone wolf tree stands all the time now, you know, but I didn't always back then. Obviously, the I, I think I get wiser and smarter with age. Uh, I just did some things that really weren't smart in my earlier years. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's like, it, it's like, you know, study the animal. It's about getting closer to the animal. You know, like I said, $1,500 isn't going to guarantee, a $1,500 bull package will not guarantee a deer. You know, studying the, what the game animal does, trails, uh, you know, wind direction, and, and their habits, trail cameras, you know, sitting on the edge of the field with a spotting scope and watching, with nothing replaces that yeah. uh, to get close to the deer. The equipment is just, it's secondary uh, versus the skill. Right. And, uh, you know, there's some great products out there. You know what? There might be some really bad products out there, but you know what? I, I just know I'm certain you and I could take a, a three hundred dollar bowl and be able to shoot fist sized groups at twenty yards and go out and harvest a white tail with it this fall. Right. right. So it doesn't need to be a thousand dollar bowl, although there's some great benefits and advantages to a to a really high end flagship bowl. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you need to go out and harvest an animal. It's a close range sport. It is and always will be spending more time scouting the animals and trail cameras and watching what the animals do by far and away. You're going to do more than what the equipment itself will do for you. Right. I tell you what, you have made a lot of good points today on all sides of the board. And uh, I want to say thank you very much for taking time out of your day when you could be working on one of your projects to come on the show Mm -hmm. and chit chat with us today. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed it, Dan. I just I love to to bring the past, all the years that I've had with the industry, uh, and in the sport, bring it to people. And I just I, I like I, I teach hunter education, and I just I love to see the look on people's face when they hit the ranks of of successful hunters. It just right. it's what drives me. Right. I really enjoyed it, and that's good. And that's very good. Well, again, good luck this upcoming season. I wish you the best, and uh, hopefully you get that mule deer that you want. And uh, Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. Take care. Good luck to you. And that's the end of your hump day podcast. First off, I want to thank Craig for uh, coming on the show, taking time out of his day. I know he has some other projects that he needed to do, but uh, appreciate the time spent. And uh, that's a guy I definitely want on the show again. Also, all the listeners out there, as always, thank you guys very much. If I could personally give 
each and every one of you a high five with my four-fingered hand. I guess it'd be called the high four. If I could give all of you a high four, I would do it. I'd I'd just do it. That's how much I appreciate. <laughs> That's how much I appreciate you guys uh, tuning in and listening to the show. Another huge shout out to Exodus Outdoor Gear. Uh, go check their tra- trail cameras out at exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you do decide to purchase, make sure you enter the code nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers, no spaces. And uh, other than that, make sure you guys leave a review on iTunes. Make sure you go to uh, Facebook and follow me, Instagram and follow me, Twitter, follow me, blah, 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 blah. And if you're in a tree, wear your damn safety harness. <laughs>